welcome to Blue Medicine Journal. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Luz del Castillo. I'm a Jungian mentor, ritual artist, and dreamer, coming to you from out of the blue. Thank you for tuning in and for your curiosity. This New Moon episode is the second in a three-part series called Postpartum Blues, La Llorona and the Shadow, which came to be out of the blue in a series of synchronicities and serendipity. I'll begin first with a word about the Jungian approach to mythology, followed by a short summary of our first episode. Jungian analyst and founder of archetypal psychology, James Hillman tells us that the soul is entangled in myths. As he put it, when we begin uncovering the figures of myth, we are learning what other cultures always knew. To know ourselves, we must know the gods and goddesses of myth. We must face the gods. Myth is the language of the soul, and so facing the gods means to discover and recover our lost soul. This is true both personally and as a collective. As a living blueprint, myth ignites and shows both the way and the conflict. When we understand the gods and goddesses of mythology as giving image to styles and qualities of consciousness, each with their own unique powers, values, and psychic processes, myth offers psychological understanding. It liberates us from the confusion of our inner states and their outward manifestations. This is key. Learning to read the world mythically takes us from the personal to the universal and reflects that back again. Myth provides images and frees us from the ego's limited vision and consequently oppressive point of view. Myth restores order from chaos and in metaphoric terms, it reveals the gods or values whose altars need tending. With that, we return to our first episode for a brief summary. We were introduced to Sharatanga, the goddess of the new moon in the Purepecha pantheon and my paternal ancestry. A creator goddess and patroness of childbirth, Sharatanga was also venerated by the farmers who planted by her cycles. After the conquest, she was syncretized with the Virgin of Health. As legend has it, the Purepecha women made the statue of the Virgin of Health with a paste of blue cornflour to honor Sharatanga. They also placed, unbeknownst to the authorities, some of the goddess's relics inside the statue, which still stands today, 500 years later, in her ancient basilica in Pátzcuaro, Michoacán. We also learned of Sharatanga's association with the Yoronas, or weeping women, 
who in Mesoamerica were the women who died in their first childbirth. Called Awikanime or Nana Kukuku in Purepecha, these women earned warrior status and became stars and cosmic midwives in the new moon goddess's celestial court. Their role was to help Sharatanga watch over the pregnant women during their pregnancies, childbirth, and postpartum recovery. Here, we begin to gain a glimpse of the numinous energies of the soul realms after death. There is a beauty in this imagery that nourishes and sustains the soul of the family surviving the loss of the new mother and acts as a living blueprint guiding the new mother's soul after death. The Yorona's shadow side arises when they were said to leave their place in the skies unexpectedly and wander the earth at night crying, looking for their lost babies. Their penetrating lament was greatly feared and considered an omen which signaled death and disaster. And so the Purepecha people would gather to say prayers, asking for her mercy. Her mercy. This shadow side of the Mesoamerican Yoronas could perhaps give image to the profound dangers of being engulfed by grief. While grieving is a necessary and too often unheeded stage of bereavement and modernity, to be possessed by grief, either personal or collective, can evoke a downward spiral into the deep waters of the mythic underworld, where, without a guide, its nightmares are unleashed. As we consider both Sharatanga and the Yoronas in the context of childbirth and postpartum blues, we begin to find a larger unfolding story. As we saw in our first episode, in Mesoamerica, childbirth was acknowledged as a rite of passage in which first-time mothers achieved warrior status. After labor, the mother was tended to, resting for 40 days to fully recover her strength. This changed with colonization, as did the myth of La Llorona herself, who was stripped of her divinity. La Llorona was no longer a minor deity, a warrior, a star, or a cosmic midwife in the Sharatanga celestial court. Instead, the colonized Yorona is a poor and unmarried mother. So already fallen from grace, she lives at the mercy of the Spanish Hidalgo and father of her children. When he tells her he is leaving to marry a Spanish noblewoman and take their sons, La Yorona goes mad. In horror, she strikes out at the Hidalgo. Then she turns on herself and finally her children, whom in a wild frenzy, she flings into the raging river and then dies of grief at the riverbank. Ever since, La Llorona haunts the riverbanks, lakes and wells, wailing in search of her dead children. That her piercing lament was heard near bodies of water points to the realms of the unconscious. In Jungian thought, the unconscious is associated with water. And like the ocean, it holds the great mystery, 
teeming with unseen life and archetypal energies. Wells, in particular, appear in many myths and fairy tales. And as Jungian analyst Lisa Marciano tells us in her highly acclaimed book, Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself, wells symbolize contact with profound life-giving waters that mysteriously well up from the underworld, that is the unconscious. In Celtic mythology, sacred wells are portals to the other world and their waters are imbued with magical or healing properties. But in the context of La Llorona, the well is a haunted portal, as are the lakes or rivers, just as she is both the haunted and haunting ghost of the bad mother who killed her children and drowned in the well of grief where the worst possible nightmares unfolded. began to glimpse the power of myth and its repercussions on the personal and collective psyche for centuries. Again, we are psychologically immersed and, and entangled in myth. It could be said we are in-mythed. And recall that what we call mythology was once ancient religions. And what we call religion is the mythology in which we are in-mythed today. Our life stories spring from these. In our first episode, we also considered the haunting story in the New Yorker magazine by Linda Winters called What We Still Don't Understand About Postpartum Psychosis. We learned that one in seven women suffer from postpartum depression and that there is neither training dedicated to treat the women nor the funding for the research needed for such a prevalent condition. We also learned that postpartum psychosis is rare, affecting one or two in a thousand women. And filicide driven by postpartum psychosis is even rarer. The modern approach is to regulate through pharmaceuticals, whose dis distribution is at the mercy of the insurance companies. The unaddressed question in both the cases of filicide and suicidal ideation is how much can be attributed to the so-called side effects of the pharmaceutical cocktails prescribed to regulate the perinatal or postpartum moods and anxiety disorders, or PMATs as they're called. This healthcare model is far from the vision of the U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy, who reminds us that to be a healer, you have to be able to listen, to learn, and to love. Instead, today's model is more the equivalent of the Spanish Hidalgo in the myth, who regards the mother of his children simply as breeder, unvalued, and ultimately abandoned. These mothers become the modern-day Lloronas, just as haunted and haunting Again, the images of myth are aspects of the psyche, both personal and collective. This means the Spanish Hidalgo also lives within the mother, lurking in the shadow, 
We are unconscious of his power. His presence is known when we betray ourselves. During this powerful rite of passage, however unwittingly, when we buy into any of the patriarchal structure which makes caricatures of pregnant women and birthing moms on sitcoms, disdains our stretch marks and postpartum bellies, dismisses us, dismisses us our self-worth and self-sacrifice in the lengthy process that is pregnancy, that desacralizes the liminal, sacred, and mind-altering act of birthing itself, which in antiquity earned women the status of warriors. The patriarchal structure which denies us the rest and support we need postpartum for the crucial recovery, both physical and emotional. And then in an act of sentimentality, parades us around once a year wearing corsages on Mother's Day. Which again is not to say we don't deserve that, but that and so much more. Again, if we can't imagine what holistic health care looks like for birthing mothers and for those suffering postpartum depression or psychosis, it's not likely we'll ever have it. There are so many different manifestations of perinatal or postpartum moods and anxiety disorders. Today, I am happy and privileged to be speaking with two women who share the stories of their descent into the postpartum blues and how they learned to navigate, navigate their night sea journey and gradual recovery through art and Jungian analysis. We begin with the Romanian artist Cornelia Tay. Cornelia and I met on Instagram when we both responded to Winter's article in The New Yorker. We were among the thousands of other women incredulous at the stark state of affairs over postpartum blues. I realized then as a Jungian scholar and mentor, having traveled the underworld of postpartum blues, I could not remain in silence on this subject. I knew I had to delve into these haunted waters once again and shed light on this topic from a Jungian perspective in my podcast. As Cornelia and I found, there were many synchronicities that brought us together to address this topic. Simply put, a, a synchronicity means a meaningful coincidence. They speak to the intelligent and souled and interconnected world in which we are immersed. Just two weeks before Cornelia found the New Yorker article, a German television station invited her to show her series of watercolor paintings called Blue Milk, which chronicled her postpartum depression, a series that she had painted a decade earlier. And three weeks before she discovered the New Yorker article, she had also painted an image of a raven. This, as Cornelia tells us, was unusual because she pointed out she had a phobia of birds since a childhood kerfuffle with a chicken. As synchronicity would have it, Raven has been my guardian since I was 16. 
To the First Nation peoples of the Pacific Northwest, Raven is both a trickster and creator god. In a time of darkness, he brought the sun, moon, stars, and created the rivers. Raven watched me through my perinatal and postpartum blues in the Netherlands, but more on that in the last episode. And in another act of synchronicity, Cornelia was the name of my Dutch mother-in-law. Now a little background on Cornelia. A Romanian artist living in Germany, she was born at she was born at the end of the 1970s and lived through communism as it took an austere turn. As she puts it, the years until the revolution in 1989 had an extreme impact on my choice to make art because almost everything was defined by the shortage except the beauty of nature and classical literature. I started to paint. Her art education began in Romania at the age of 14, and she finished with a master's degree in decorative arts and design. Cornelia moved to Denmark, where she worked as a designer for 10 years and continued her studies in art education. Today, she lives in Hamburg, Germany, where she dedicates herself to painting. Her series called Blue Milk traces her postpartum depression and acted as her healing modality through that dark time. And with that, I pass the baton to Cornelia. Welcome, Cornelia. Please do share. Thank you, Sandra. And thank you for inviting me over. My pleasure. I'm thrilled to have you. Yes, and such a meaningful conversations I had with you. And <clears throat> I think the healing continues. It started um, a while ago, and somehow it continues still today. And this comes as a surprise to me because... Um, all this postpartum uh, experience has been somehow buried for the past 10 years after the, let's say, after the, the acute episodes and the, and, the, and the first part of healing happened. Um, and just about at the time of the New Yorker article, I think two weeks before, the whole postpartum topic surfaced again in my life. The German television asked me to do a reportage with them. And this happened after about, yeah, nearly 10, 12 years, I would say, of, of pause. Um, and it has been almost like entering a very <laughs> dark room, forgotten, somewhere at the end of a very big castle and I had to find the keys and open it again. It's not because I have been avoiding this. I haven't. It's just not a very common subject of conversation and it's not the most, um, it's not the most sexy as you said, <laughs> not the most sexy as you said earlier. <laughs> in our backroom conversation. So yes. you'll, you'll tell us a little about how 
I was struck because I did watch the German um, television uh, report on your Blue Milk series. And you you can tell us a little bit about how that unfolded, you know, Uh, but but when I listened to how the art itself spoke and and informed you of your state, I I was reminded of the art therapist, um, uh, Sean McNiff, who, who says that whenever illness is associated with a loss of soul, the arts emerge spontaneously as remedies, soul medicine. So, so please tell us a little about yes. soul medicine, that process. And I have to, I have to, call, uh, to quote Louise Bourgeois here, and I always do. And she said, the art is a guarantee of sanity. And mm-hmm. it really is, I have to say, it's definitely a guaranteed, a guaranteed medicine. So the way it happened, um, well, I got pregnant with my daughter when I was about 30 years old. And that's also at the time, at that time, I changed my career from being a designer to, to, to re-become an artist. So it was um, a transition I was going through, <clears throat> which meant also less contact with other people. So I became more isolated because that's the price the artists pay. through their isolation we have less contact with outside world and I think looking back I think that my postpartum started during pregnancy already and I I still don't understand today how much the hormones play the role in that or other other circumstances from my life from that time just it happened uh, and the darkness came slowly but I started to feel it quite early in the pregnancy. And after I, I um, after my daughter came, I had two weeks of an incredible joy and happiness, which I never felt before in my life or after, was this incredible euphoric happiness. But the, after these two incredible weeks, which I, I believe there are these baby pinks, I, I have... I heard about, you know, this incredible euphoria, the baby blues started to kick in. And um, and I was not aware that that's baby blues. That's the, I think the tricky part in the postpartum depression is that, is, is that one is not aware of it. It's the lack of awareness. It's somehow our awareness starts to sleep, disappear, it becomes numb. We become, there is a sort of numbness and we get a bit lost in ourselves every day, a little bit more. And it becomes like uh, uh, like a chase in a maze, trying to find ourselves. And it's it's getting diff- more difficult, more difficult every day. And this happened, this, this loss of self kind of happened um, for many months in a row and it became worse and worse. And worse means, how did that feel? It felt, first of all, it felt like I couldn't recognize myself. That was one aspect. Many things which I remembered, I knew as they were myself, suddenly started to feel foreign to me. Another thing, I couldn't feel joy. 
I couldn't, I was very happy for my daughter, but I couldn't feel the true joy. It was a very disturb, it was, it was a maddening feeling because I had all the, I knew, my mind knew that I had all the reasons in this universe to be happy and grateful, and yet I could not reach out to this feeling of happiness and gratitude, which le leads to an incredible deep feeling of shame. And I think the shame is the is 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 this shadow we carry with through the postpartum in every second and minute of the day. It's an overwhelming it's an overwhelming cloud we are in, we are moving through, which becomes stronger and stronger. And with the shame, the shame is followed by the doubt. The doubt of, am I a good enough mother? Am I, am I uh, strong enough to carry this, to, to um, fulfill this task? All this, all this, <laughs> complicated questions with no answers run somewhere on the background. Um, they're not really articulated and you cannot really talk about them with friends or with family. They are somewhere on a very subtle way happening on the back of the mind all the time. So these things combine with the tiredness, with the isolation, my ex-husband was traveling at that time. Um, we've got, uh, we, we were screened in Denmark for postpartum depression, but already at that time, the, this kind of shame was activated. So I, I lied. I lied that I was well during screening. So I think the intention is good, but the screening is not enough to spot this condition, I, I doubt that it's enough. So um, at some point I developed a very incredibly intense, an incredibly intense form of hypochondria, which was, um, this started to show me that something was not right. So I, I, I started to understand that there is more than me being tired, moody or hormonal to that story. And this hypochondria was so severe that I was uh, almost grieving my own death already. <laughs> it was, <laughs> and, and, and I knew I knew the story of Sylvia Plath. I knew her story of of her suicide. Somehow I knew that this can happen, but I refused to believe that it happened to myself because I had mental illness in my family. Um, I always thought that somehow, through my own efforts, I will escape th this kind of destiny. And because of that, I would do anything I could to avoid visiting the doctor or admitting even that somehow I've lost it. I'm not strong enough, you know, to fight whatever physical or non-physical um, discomfort. And um, I lived with this for about a year until my daughter started the daycare in Denmark. We were lucky the children started daycare after a year already. 
And I started painting straight away. I missed it terribly, so I started painting straight away. But I was living in a such terrible fog already at, at that time. So I didn't start painting from a from a from from a place of creativity and and joy. I carried myself to a studio more like a wounded, like a like a Lorona. Actually, I went there like a, like a very wounded mother, but I didn't, I was not even aware. I was just isolated in myself. I couldn't speak out. My voice was shut. I couldn't speak out about my pain. And I didn't intend to. It was not even my intention to speak out. But miracles happened. So I started painting. And I painted, uh, I started to paint with watercolor and that was new for me. And there is something incredible looking back now about the power of water right. because yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's um, the water can really change the frequency and the energy oh. and, and somehow this slow process of, of watercolor drying up and and I worked with layers on top of layers on top of layers. <clears throat> and it was not a conscious process. I think it was the only time in my, in, my, uh, in my life as an artist to allow the process to happen. I didn't intervene because I didn't know I was anyway. I was, uh, I was not in a place where I could guide my work, my, my artistic process. So I painted for months. And uh, in all this time, I somehow missed the chance to have a really large overview to, to, to all my paintings. So it was like painting after painting. But um, one day I, I was preparing for a, for a mini, for a small exhibition I had with those paintings. So I laid down um, about 30 pieces on the floor and that was the moment when it happened when I first time saw because I never realized the the level of so first of all my paintings looked incredibly expressionist and disturbed everything looked dark there were these these elements of of um of a nursery like small toys and small uh, doors, which somehow they became um, horrible, frightening creatures associated somehow with babies who are not looking happy. There are all these overlapped layers of, of, of different elements. And that's where I realized I saw the, I really saw my depression. I saw it with my eyes. And when I saw it with my eyes, I it was the first time when I got in touch with a self-compassion towards my own pain. And I understood somehow from my heart that I have been suffering and that was not something I imagined. Mm. But it, it also relieved me. It was, I think, the moment when, when through that kind of self-understanding, the self-forgiveness came. In a very, it happened very quickly and and very clearly, and from that, 
it has been much easier. I did get some therapy, uh, but I think the healing already happened and I looked for a homeopath uh, and I have been very lucky to find a very talented German homeopath who, who helped me um, balance my hormones. And looking back at those paintings, so when I looked at them today, I understood more than I understood 10 years ago. I always wanted to, so that's why I'm so grateful I've met you, Sandra, because I always thought about so many other women who are suffering alone and they might not have the access to art or, or to community as I didn't have the access to community because I was not living um, with my own family. And I always wondered, how do they get through it? Thank you so much for sharing that. But to me, I, I'm I'm so struck by how the art spoke to you. To me, to me, as you're speaking about how women that without the access to the art. Or, or community, how do we get through it? That's the point. When I went through mine, I had no no one understood at all. And and the access to art. So let's imagine that. To me, as we as we speak together, let's imagine art as part of the healing modality of women. I I, I want to to um, read something again from the art therapist uh, Sean McNiff, who is also Jungian. He says. <clears throat> if we imagine paintings as a host of guides, messengers, guardians, friends, helpers, protectors, familiars, shamans, intermediators, visitors, agents, emanations, epiphanies, influences, and other psychic functionaries we have stepped outside the frame of positive science and into the archetypal mainstream of poetic and visionary contemplation. Yes, I so agree. I so agree to this. And I think I can, it's very difficult to explain it in words. <laughs> it's so much easier to explain it through any form of art. But you see, when we create, we actually download, we open to, we open. If we really create, we stop our mm, rational mind making a strategy, creating a strategy, uh, controlling. We open to bigger powers. When we open to bigger powers, we also cleans there is something magical happening which it's completely outside of our understanding to be honest it's the magic it's the it's the the secret of the creation i think in each of us and it's happening but it's the power you see it's the unconscious and that's that's i think that's what 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 is happening when we paint or sing or dance or or you know we write poetry when we do, when we do any form of of creation of artistic um, let out I would say is that we open to the unconscious 
we open to we open our subconscious all the things which are buried underneath our understanding come through the words we cannot express normally the feelings we cannot express normally because of of a fear or um of or i don't know fear of judgment or or just um incapacity to actually speak that kind of truth sometimes it's too big sometimes it's just too hard to say those kind of words about those feelings or even even get in touch with them but somehow when we find a form of, of of creativity and let it let let these energies come through then we can get in touch we can encounter the bigger part of ourselves somehow and through that i think through that we understand ourselves better we can forgive ourselves brings me to your question actually from um from the very beginning how would the future like how would the future look like you know the future of health care of women's care and how would it be like if in the public libraries for example would exist a room where where there would be artists working together with people who can just stop by for a drawing or for a painting or for just writing a poem to hold that space I think publicly, how would that look? Because I I find it I find it very interesting when people ask me what I'm doing and I tell them I'm an artist. Most of them tell me, oh, you know, I really would love to paint, I really love drawing, or I really love seeing, but I never have time for this. And I I, I think it doesn't exist um, a space where people can just stop for an hour or two. Like people stop in the library or the gym to have access to this self-expression space. Lovely. It's a lovely image. And, and this, when we think about an image like that, how how something like what you're proposing in a public library is in service to civilization, the higher values of civilization, you know, that, that we think of the mythic hero in service to the to the to the gods, which means the higher values of civilization. I mean, ultimately, when we think of a of, of Earth democracy, of of, of a, you know a, a new vision of how that how that looks, these things are are crucial. These are additions. These are things that we can we can stir in uh, into the into our, our our cauldron and and you know help to plant seeds of hope for this this new world um uh so that it, because if we can't imagine it it's not likely to happen is it yes but everything you see i i can i can um, testify that as an artist every piece of art starts with the imagination of it mm. so i guess the future of this earth also we have to start imagining it, it that's the beginning. <laughs> with every creation starts with the with the imagination of it. it so so beautifully put, and and that's it. If we think about imagination as you know the um, 
French philosopher and, and Islamic scholar Henri Corbin said that imagination was the creative force arising from the heart. The heart is the seed of the imagination. It expresses itself in images. We need those images. And, and, and the, the mundus imaginalis, the, the world, the imaginal world is what creates. Yes, so, I guess the imagination and the hope, they have same kind of uh, fountain. <laughs> they come from the same place, exactly. Yeah. And so, with that imagery of a fountain of hope and imagination, our first conversation comes to a close. I want to thank Cornelia for her poignant and eloquent storytelling as she unpacked her mythic descent, which she described as a chase in a maze, and how her art became her mirror, soul medicine, and lifeline from which self-compassion and self-forgiveness could arise and healing begin. Listeners can view Cornelia's extraordinary Blue Milk series on her website, corneliatay.com. That's T-A-E. <clears throat> and it's linked on her Instagram account as well of the same name. And with that, we turn to our next guest, Cristina Valdivia Alcalá. Cristina is the founder of the Tonantzin Society, a nonprofit organization that Cristina founded in 2012 in Topeka, Kansas. She was raised in a tight-knit Mexican community in the 1960s. Cristina's paternal family was very involved in helping fundraise and build Our Lady of Guadalupe Church and School. Like so many families, Cristina's family were silent about the trauma of migration, poverty, depression, alcoholism, and loss of identity. In 1984, Christina gave birth to her first and only child, and after she was married, she shares that she plunged into a deep depression, which in retrospect, she feels was a postpartum depression with intense anxiety. While she never lost touch with reality, at that time, her fears and symptoms were of such an intense nature, she prayed for death. In 1995, Christina stumbled upon Clarissa Pinkola Estes' Women Who Run With the Wolves and eventually began Jungian psychoanalysis in 1999. The journey of her soul work and healing has felt monumental and lonely at times. As Christina tells it, being from Kansas, she was not in direct connection with many that travel this road of healing which includes journaling, bodywork, analysis, and active imagination. Over the decades, the writings of Jung, Hillman, Woodman, Kalshed, Brenton Pereira, and Pinkola Estes filled her sense of isolation. She also traveled to a number of states to work with several powerful curanderas. I look forward to hearing about this. Currently, Christina is married is close with her daughter and two grandchildren, <clears throat> excuse me, and still deeply involved in her community. Welcome, Christina. I think first and foremost, I want to say thank you for having me. And thank you so much, Cornelia, for your story and for getting to know 
you both in a in a deeper way in a deeper level as we talk about I believe what is a very difficult uh, subject, taboo subject, and yet also I believe is probably where our deepest healing can occur. And um, about the Don Unseen Society, I would say first and foremost that the Don Unseen Society has been my search for mother, right? Um, whether that be in my deepening connection with Mother Earth, whether that be the search for growing up so deeply immersed in the imagery um, of Our Lady of Guadalupe and Catholicism, uh, for the search for my, in, my own internal mother, um, and for somehow trying to heal that very deep uh, mother wound that I have had with my own mother and as my mother had with her mother before her and with my grandmother who lost her own mother uh, at the age of, of three years old. So it's, it's, it's been very complex, but uh, it really has been that expansion of art, culture, uh, social justice, environmental justice, and trying to build this connection uh, with women, no matter where they may be and what space that they're in at any given time. Beautiful, beautiful. It should be noted that Tonansin was a Aztec mother goddess, and she is syncretized with La Virgen de Guadalupe, in that they they wear the the hill Tepeyac where Guadalupe appeared was actually the ancient shrine of Tonansin. And while today um, it is the shrine and it's a pilgrimage site where millions go every year on December 12th to celebrate La Virgen de Guadalupe, before they celebrated La Virgen de Guadalupe there, it was a pilgrimage site you know, in, 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 in uh, Mesoamerica where pilgrims from all over Mesoamerica came there to, to and, you know, in honor of Donansin, the mother goddess. Tepeyac literally means the hill that sings. That singing is what uh, Juan Diego, Guadalupe's me uh, messenger, heard that singing of the, of yeah. the sacred hill of Tepeyac. Anyway, and I'm just to, and just and just to imagine that even a little bit further, I come from a family on the Valdivia side that very very steeped in the uh, connection to Our Lady Guadalupe, the creation helping uh, build the church uh, with fundraising and, and my family being very committed to volunteer volunteerism um, and whether that be through cooking, whether that be through prayer, whether that be through giving money, whether however that would be, everything was for Our Lady Guadalupe. And so that imagery was steeped into consciousness probably, you know, before, well, it had to have been before I was born because it was part of that collective uh, psyche. And so a very strong affinity I grew up with of Our Lady Guadalupe as well. Uh, you know, who who is, in terms of the Mexican psyche, she has been the liberator. The, the appearance of, of La Virgen de Guadalupe you know, during the Spanish conquest, after 10, you know, 10 years of the Holocaust uh, had been going on at her appearance and, and her role in, in, in Mexico as a liberator and, and savior cannot be, you know, underestimated. 
in essence, she became, you know, for the for the Mesoamericans who had lost their 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 priests, had lost their religions, had been, you know, had been just torn asunder. She became, you know, with her cloak that matched the constellations in the sky, with her brown skin, she became a savior. She became what allowed the the Mexican nation to be born and for for the the Mesoamericans to find a way back into spirituality without being wiped out completely. Right. And without that context, though, what we also have to understand is there is what Catholicism, what patriarchy, what the assimilation process uh, has done with the image, right? And and in in the way that I grew up, it was very much the uh, epitome of the perfect mother, of the self-abnegating woman. Uh, there was nothing other than mother, nothing. Yeah. And so that in and of itself is a very daunting uh, figure. Uh, you know, her being separated at the time I was growing up from Mother Earth, you know, from her imagery as, as in the indigenous realm of Tonantzin Coatlicue, which is both the light and the dark mother, Absolutely. right? Together held, held movement, you know, back and forth. She was split off and just became the self-sacrificing woman. And in the realm that I was raised in, in the 60s and the 70s, that was very much what was expected of a Mexican-American woman. Absolutely. I think, and women in general, that intrapsychic split was, you know, laid on all of us, where we, Absolutely. all of the Mesoamerican and the pagan gods, you know, all carried this uh, light and dark, which, as Jung points out, is a symbol of wholeness. Uh, we are light and dark. We are conscious and unconsciousness. It's a it's a symbol of psychological wholeness. And when that was cut off through Christianity, basically the intrapsychic split was imposed, and and everything, it all only the Holy Trinity was was perfect, and all darkness was relegated to the devil, and Absolutely. and consequently, any time anything was different it became evil they were the devil and the shadow within was projected outwards absolutely and onto women in particular by absolutely and by, so yeah. and so just understand that is the foundation of where my particular narrative you know begins as a mother i would say it was probably one of the most intensely difficult periods um, of my life. And there is still a sense of, you know, in my prayer life, which has always been um, very important to me. I, I was very spiritual as a child, um, you know, just could be caught up very much in, in imagination and fantasy of you know, that relationship with Christ, that relationship with Our Lady Guadalupe, you know, very highly charged inner spiritual life. And which I think came with it a very heavy and intense and unconscious dose of perfection, right? To be without sin uh, 
very to, different concept, the idea of perfection in, in, within, the, you know, let's say the Judeo-Christian concept of perfection right. as opposed to wholeness in right. psychology. Wholeness is a very different thing, right? And, and wholeness was never even part of the equation growing up. Everything was towards perfection and towards uh, self-abnegation, the confessional, the suffering that we needed to endure in this life to be able to have any sense of calm and peace in the next life. So a child very filled with this imagination and in a very highly charged spiritual, uh, you know, uh, I will just say right off the bat at a very young age, uh, I suffered uh, sexual abuse, which caused deep disassociation at times. I was an introvert, uh, very internalized, uh, a father's daughter, uh, as Woodman would say, uh, you know, very much uh, intensified by a, a deep, you know, mother wound that I carried and disconnect from my own mother. Thank God for my grandmother and my mother's mother in this realm, because she was able to give me a sense of, of love and connection that I could not find with my own mother. So into this realm, I come and I, I have a child. Um, I was living in Alaska at the time. I had family that had lived up there. I was at a juncture in my life where I was very young when I got pregnant. I had my daughter when, you know, I had just turned 22. Um, I was trying to understand and make my way and what it meant to be adult and I had no idea and was terrified as far as what that meant. Uh, I became pregnant out of wedlock which was very shaming in you know in the early 1980s in and of itself. Um, and so something internal within me believed that I had to endure this all on my own by myself. Very similar to how I had endured when I had been sexually abused because I remained silent about the abuse and I did not uh, tell my mom and dad. I, I, I acted out in, in physical illness. Uh, I read from my doctor's notes at the time, you know, during that three and five-year-old period that they tried to treat me with Thorazine because I had had intense crying jags and they could not understand what was wrong with me. So again, when I hit that point of postpartum depression, I dealt with it very much the way I dealt with it as a child. And I was uh, in Alaska. I was uh, living with my uh, boyfriend at the time. Uh, and I was dealing with the pregnancy uh, by myself. I wanted to come back home. I wanted to be with my grandmother. Uh, by some extent, I even wanted to be with my mother, but I felt such shame at uh, becoming pregnant that I felt, again, I had to endure it on my own. And so I gave birth to my daughter. And I remember when they put my daughter on my chest I remember saying out loud, I will love you, I will take care of you, and I will never abandon you. That's what I told my daughter. And so from that time um, until about she was until she was about 10 months old, 
I did the best I could. I was I was trying all these years later, 40, almost 40 years later, and all the time that I've looked and introspection that I've had, I was trying to be the perfect mother. I was trying to make up for every single wound I had had that I could not yet articulate to myself. I wanted to be absolutely there for her in every way that I could um, to make up for every failing that probably existed in the universe. I thought <laughs> that I had to do. Um, and it, it all collided when uh, she was about 10 months old. And I had been very numb to that point. I was able to hold my daughter. I was able to feed her. I was so conflicted about breastfeeding. I could never breastfeed her. And I didn't know who to ask about it. I didn't know how to get help. So I stayed silent about it. But at about 10, she was at about 10 months old when it just hit. And it just came out of the blue. And it was the fear of hurting her, the fear that I could do harm to my own daughter. And from that point on, it was just a spiral downward. It was everything that I could do to just hold myself together. Uh, I would not speak of it. Uh, I was inundated with anxiety at the deepest level. I could not sleep. I could not eat. Uh, I had ruminating thoughts. I was so deeply ashamed and terrified that if anyone found found out that I had fears of harming my own daughter, that they would take her away from me. And what would I do? And what would she do without a mother? And so at you know, this all happened very, very quickly. And uh, my, uh, well, I guess now this was in 19, I had her in 1984, 1995. In January of that year, I had gotten married. I did not want to get married, I, but I was just trying to do the right thing. And so it was about in April or May of 1995 that all of this just started and the downward spiral began. I didn't know what else to do. I told my husband then, I have to go home. I have to go home. We moved back to uh, Kansas. You know, my husband and I, my daughter uh, lived, uh, my parents had a very large house out on a farm, you know, that that we had grown up in. Um and we lived with them for about three years. And it was just the darkest, most excruciating time that I can tell you about because I felt completely isolated, completely alone. I did not have any idea why this was happening to me. None. I could think of nothing to make sense of this whole thing. And I can remember having, you know, prayed a lot in, in my younger years, having struggled with prayer in, in my teenage years, but, you know, turning to poetry at a, at a certain period of time in my teenage years, um, I, I went back to praying and during that time that so much upon uh, looking back reminded me of Job, you know, the, the story of Job and, and the suffering of just not understanding it. Uh, fearing that I was going to go crazy, that I, I just couldn't understand it. And then uh, I went into therapy and I refused to talk about it. It, it makes so much sense what Cornelia uh, said about 
you just want to act like everything is okay because you, for me, I didn't want people to see how deeply uh, uh, fearful I was about falling apart internally. And uh, the first two or three, well, probably the first two or three years after that were just very, very difficult. And I would pray and I would go into church and I would just, you know, pray to Our Lady Guadalupe. I don't understand what's happening. I don't understand why this is, is occurring. And if you cannot reveal something to me or help me get some kind of understanding, then kill me while I sleep because the pain was so deep. And so that was just my struggle at the time. And it's taken me a long time to come to some kind of understanding. Thank you, Christina, that, because you know that what you just shared is archetypal. You know, I, I go back to La Llorona. Here, to me, I feel the, the, the wails of La Llorona because as you speak, you, your words, you can be sure, embrace young mothers today that, that are unaware, you know, <laughs> of what's going on or why. So so how did you go about finding help once, you know, I mean. That was the journey. Oh my God, that, that was a journey. And, you know, I look at Cornelia right now and I think how brave she is and how much more grounded she is. And I think my senses is that that, art has been the catalyst to helping her find her voice and be able to speak in a steady voice, right? I didn't have art at the time. I had stopped writing poetry. Uh, I used to write quite a bit when I was in my, you know, my teenage years. Unreflected poetry, I will say, which, you know, now that I look back at it, it was so powerful at the time. I tried everything everything other than speaking about it. I, books were my life. I went into traditional therapy. It brought me no, uh, it brought little comfort at all. I refused medication for a long period of time, you know, slowly, you know, and still to this day, I, you know, I take a small dose of Paxil, like struggle with anxiety, which I'm highly charged for that and which body work has definitely helped me, but I tried everything I and nothing worked. Um, I mean, the symptoms abated all of that, but what that left was almost a kind of disintegration to some extent that you kind of rebuild yourself from. I never lost touch with reality. I never had a psychosis. I always kept working. I raised my daughter, you know, I stayed married, uh, you know, for a decade after that. I volunteered in community, but inside it, it reminds me very much of what Jung went through when he went into the descent of the unconscious. Now, we all know that Jung went into that because he was trying to come to terms with whatever break he had with Freud, you know, he, that understanding that he had had with his own trauma, you know, at a, at a young age and, and trying to find meaning of that. 
And so looking back on it now, it was my own kind of descent without even understanding that it was a descent. And what happens is you, you slowly start to put, you know, put the pieces back together again. And that's what I did. And it was, and, and I did that because some connection always remained with my soul something there was I was so disconnected from my body for so many years but I I used to tell my first analyst that I could feel this tiny tiny thread that was in the center of my body that would move down to about my stomach and there would be a very small candle which I I think was some kind of connection with my own soul Mm. and I I realized that it was that connection and it was also my prayer, which for so long I felt was unheard. Yet the steps that I kept making bound through my intuition and the next step to proceed was what eventually brought me to Clarissa Pinkola Estes uh, in the late 90s, which then eventually brought me into reading more about Jung and eventually brought me into psychoanalysis. Mm, wonderful, wonderful. You you mentioned your work with um, Marion Woodman. One of the, I, I want to talk a little bit about the synchronicity that you and I share, uh, Christina, because there's been so much synchronicity and, and, and synchronicity again, you know, it's meaningful coincidence and it speaks to the, the larger story, the, um, of an ensouled universe that is communicative and intelligent. And Christina and I m- met, it's, it's, it's so amazing. I mean, just the, the synchronicities, let's say between Cornelia and I, the synchronicities between you and I have been startling. Christina and I first met what was it? What year was that? It, I think it was probably 2002 when we were both had submitted our writings for a Chicana anthology. And I think it was out of a hundred and some Chicanas that were talking about their stories, you know, their struggles through adversity, et cetera, that you and I were picked out of 12. Well, we were 12 Chicanas that were picked out of this, this pool to be part of this Chicana anthology with which ended up going nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so, but but Christina got in touch with me, although the, the the anthology dissolved, Christina got in touch with me via email. She was living in Kansas and I was in Mexico at the time. And so we we were in touch for a while and then we lost touch for 20 years. And yes. recently a colleague connected us on Instagram uh, when you, Christina, you had, you had responded to a post of a, from a Jungian um, journal that my um, department chair, um, Mary Wood had written an article about um, Gloria Anzaldúa. And you had mentioned something about we needed more Latinas in the Jungian realm. And so he introduced us. And the next day you, emailed me you messaged me on Instagram and said hey do you remember me I you know the connection wasn't wasn't like immediate I I saw the del Castillo and then I saw the loose and then I went to your Instagram page 
And I'm thinking, okay, you know, this, this sounds like a Latina, Chicana, you know, whatever, however we want to phrase ourselves. And I thought, this is really cool. I mean, I've been in this Jungian realm for so long. I've been to, you know, workshops when I could afford it. I, you know, read and been in psychoanalysis, been to things in Kansas City, listened to podcasts, you know, online classes, blah, blah, blah. You see this dearth of, you know, indigenous, Chicana, you know, kind of uh, the medicine, et cetera. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. You know, this is something that I've missed out. There, there are Latinas here. And then it just kept, that name sounds so familiar. And all of a sudden it came in and thought, oh my God, this is loose. <laughs> this is loose from Mexico that I reached out to because I felt some kind of connection with her because I felt like some kind of, it wasn't mothering. It was just something that felt lighter and that was delving and, and that was digging. And, and I felt some kind of connection with you. Like I wanted to be associated with you somehow to understand what your journey was. And then poof, you know, we, we lost contact. And then all of a sudden, poof, and this huge synchronicity. <laughs> No, 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 no. It, it was amazing. It was. It, it's. It's been an absolute, you know, delight and 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 magical. Synchronicity is always magical to me. And and, you know, to to reconnect after all these years. You know what we didn't talk about was your you you worked with some curanderas in yes. in this process. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? You know, I I would say that the only as we talk about this and as we talk about postpartum depression and, and all the only way that I can really put this into some kind of verbal coherence is that it really is like a very complicated tapestry. And if you have the whole of, of a tapestry and, and, and all of the work that goes into it, the different threads that is really what this journey for me has been about. The postpartum depression was the catalyst for me seeking help. If it wouldn't have been for going through such intense uh, darkness, I doubt if I ever would have thought that there was anything other than what I had been living before. And so one of that had been such a loss of identity because of migration, because of colonization, because of, you know, my dad is 74% Mexican indigenous. We don't what, know what that is. Is that Huichol? Is that, you know, uh, Mistec? Is that... What, what state, what state you know, was he from? Oh, our families, both my mom and dad's families come from Guanajuato. My dad has very, what we would refer to as indigenous features, you know, but we have lost that connection with what, where our people come from, right? And so it was, it was always something there kind of swirling uh, around. And I felt so assimilated and so disconnected from what it meant to be a woman born of a mother that was born and raised in Mexico for part of her life. And my dad, who was first generation and his dad was a campesino and, you know, was able to purchase land here in the United States, which if we know anything about Mexican history, 
land was everything for the campesino, right? It was the one of the main catalysts for the for the Mexican Revolution. So in that search for identity as well as healing, uh, I stumbled upon Elena Avila, who has since you know departed this earth this earth realm. Um, and I went to some of her workshops. She wrote Women Who Glow in the Dark, um, also a woman that was very, very traumatized at a, at a very young age. So I went there. I also have worked with the wonderful curandera, Grace Sesma, um, who really helped me come into my body more and understand my relationship to the grandmothers, my relationship to the ancestors, my right, my inherent right as a woman and an indigenous woman, but first and foremost, as a woman, a human woman to pray to the ancestors, to reconnect with the earth and with the moon and with the mm -hmm. sun and with the setting sun, all of these things, Urenderismo and that, uh, planting that seed, the movement of the egg over the body, the flowers, the the, the waters, et cetera, really was a part of, of my healing as well. And when I say healing, our journey is lifelong, right? That journey to consciousness and to that reconnection with our soul, it's lifelong. And at 61, um, I come to understand that there's no end point. There's no end game. It is perpetual. <laughs> Absolutely. As Christina reminds us here, our healing is a lifelong journey. And as these last two episodes have shown, the healing modalities of mainstream medicine must be reimagined to include the funding necessary for the research and training in Dr. Vivek Murthy's words to be able to listen, love, and learn from the women, in this case, suffering from the postpartum blues and for those who have lost trust in the current corporate model. In this regard, I want to close with a dream from many, many moons ago. I'm in the business district of a small city and large black drops of oil rain down from the sky. People are fleeing office buildings with briefcases and suitcases in tow, while most rush by in a stream some people are standing under the awnings, waiting anxious, anxiously as the large black drops of oil pour down. Unlike everyone else, I'm not leaving. Instead, I'm walking towards the people and office buildings and stopping to talk with those who are asking directions or standing under the awnings. All I am carrying is a basket of garlic. I feel calm and concerned and love for the people as I point them their way through the chaos. I had this dream about 20 years ago, maybe more, and it's ap apocalyptic tone 
feels more relevant than ever. As we consider the symbols, the basket is a woman's craft. Today, we carry purses, but women have always woven and carried baskets. And garlic is medicine, and always has been since antiquity the world over, and seasoning, the spice of life. And so I close with this image of medicine baskets and the notion that we gather our medicine as we go through life. What does that medicine look like? And who are we sharing it with in these stark times? Today, I want to thank Cornelia and Christina for sharing their medicine baskets with us. Cornelia for her art, insights, visions, and beauty. And Christina for her profound storytelling, courage, wisdom, and laughter, as well as her insights on curanderismo, the Mexican indigenous healing art, and the ancestors. What's in your medicine basket? Check my Instagram or website, Blue Medicine Journal, for a workshop on gathering our medicine baskets, coming soon. In closing, I want to thank you all for your curiosity in joining me for this poignant and profound topic. Next episode is our last in a series of three, Postpartum Blues, La Llorona and the Shadow. As always, a special thanks to my producer, Lucas Bacher, editor, musician, and backstage wizard. Stay tuned. <laughs>